Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 36, and this is just another psalm of David. So for those of you who like the stylistic notes of these types of things, the whole psalm is a series of Hebrew, Hebrew parallelisms. And all that means is that there's a couplet in each verse, and all that means is simply that there are two lines which form a single unit and they express a similar truth. And so, for instance, you'll see that in like verse 36, it says, For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and his hatred of it. The second line is meant to complement the first line. And, and every aspect, you're just seeing the fullness of that drawn out further by the psalmist here, which is David. Now, the psalm also has uh, quite a few different means in which it is stylistically different. It's a lament psalm. It's also a petition. It's also a praise. But at the heart of it, it is a psalm of wisdom or proverbial wisdom literature. Now, the reason I say this is simply, as you will see, it's a psalm or an oracle concerning the wicked. It is that revelation given to David about the wicked. And that is you and I and even your sweet little infant, anybody who is apart from the saving work of God in Christ. And so it's utterly vital today that you and I understand that reality because from this wellspring of evil that we call the human heart, all things flow. Literally all things flow from that. It is the only thing that would make sense of the world that we live in. And so as you're wondering why governments abuse their power, you're wondering why the war started in Ukraine, um, if you're wondering why men cheat, lie, steal, and murder, why an untold number of women would choose an abortion over the glories of life, this is Scripture's definitive answer to the matter at hand. Mankind in all his glory is a vile, wicked sinner in need of redemption. There's nothing good within the heart of mankind. That's simply what Scripture says. Even the best thing that you and I have ever done is fully tainted and stained and ruined and ravaged by what Scripture would call your sin nature. And so it is simply who man is at the very core of his being. It is what makes him who he is. We tend to look at sin as something that we do, and that's not entirely wrong, but sin is really more so a matter of what we are. We are sinners, and therefore we sin. So in much the same way that you look at a duck, and a duck looks like a duck, a duck acts like a duck, you and I comport ourselves or look and act like a sinner because that is simply who we are at our nature. In every single aspect, there is no part of us that is unstained by the corruption and defilement of sin. We are born this way. And so scripture simply calls this person the natural man. That's what you heard Matt preach on this last week was this natural man. And that is everyone who is apart from Christ. Meaning that if you do not profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are the natural man. This condition is not simply the problem of the murderer, the rapist, the pedophile, or even the violent manipulative liar. It's every single person who has ever lived is born in this state. 
The natural man is one who does not accept the truth of God. Instead, they believe it to be folly or foolishness. The natural man is one who loves the darkness simply because darkness conceals his sin. The natural man is one who spews forth violent speech all the time. He utters threats. He uses his words to bring ruin and destruction because this is all he is capable of doing. He is one, in essence, who rebels against the God that is. He believes everything in his own life is fine. He, he is without fault. He is always the victim. He always knows best. He is the captain of his destiny or the master of his fate, as we know from that famous poem. In a word, the natural man is what the scriptures would call depraved. And all that simply means is that in every single way, every single part of his being is utterly stained by sin. He is morally corrupt. Well, the scriptures give us a reason why this is so. And this goes all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve, where they first rebelled against the God of this universe. But the basis of all this that stems from that is simply that the wicked has no fear of the Lord before their eyes. The problem is not external to him, in other words. In fact, the problem is him. It's not that he has a disobedient child. It's not that he has a wicked president, which we're also prone to focus upon. It's not even simply that he's been dealt a bad hand and he simply must play the cards that he's been dealt. The problem is himself. And yet the problem is so much greater than this too, because Despite the common saying that you and I are our own worst enemies, the scriptures would declare to you, if you were not in Christ, that God himself is your worst enemy. In a nutshell, this is what we get to see today in this psalm. We're going to see that in every single aspect, man's fundamental problem is his own sin. But it is not simply his sin, it is his sin before a holy, righteous, and infinitely just God. Right, Because it is his sin that makes him an enemy of God. It is his sin which brings the wrath of God against him. It is his sin which destroys his household, his relationships, and even his own life. But more so, his own soul. Well, what a better way to showcase this than what our psalmist actually does here. So in in verses 1 through 4, what he does is he describes this natural man And then he moves to show the contrast of this natural man's character before the infinitely holy God. And all of it is simply simply designed to show you and I that apart from the grace of God, we are utterly hopeless. And I mean that. We're, We're doomed. In every stretch of the imagination, we are doomed before the Holy One. So look with me now at verse 1, and we're going to simply start to unfold the text here. Now, depending on what translation you use, this verse might be rendered a couple different ways. If you have the NASB or the ESV or the Net Bible, all of them render this fairly similarly. It says that transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. However, if you have the King James or the NIV among a few others, they render it more accurately by saying the transgression of the wicked saith within my heart, that's David speaking, within my heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. That's a rather radical difference, isn't it? But the reason why this is more accurate between the two is that David is simply saying that this revelation is one that God has given to him. It's not the thoughts of the wicked that they have because they're blind to their own sin. And it's not merely David's own thoughts. In other words, 
These are the thoughts that God has about all mankind. These are the thoughts that God reveals to his servant David. And so David is able to see past all of the speculation that we're so prone to do, right? Because he has this word from God. He's able to get to the heart of the matter. He's able to show motivations, beliefs, and even their thoughts because God sees past every single aspect of who man is. And then he reveals that to David. So in other words, whatever you and I might be tempted to think of the unbeliever, that doesn't matter because this is what God thinks. And so if you and I would simply submit ourselves to that, if we saw things as God sees them and who he sees man as in their natural state, we wouldn't freak out about all the evil taking around or taking, uh, I should say, taking part all around us. We wouldn't freak out about that. Secondly, we would see ourselves as God truly sees us apart from the grace of God in Christ, right? Depending on who you are, that's either a wonderful thing because God has changed you from that, or that's an absolutely terrifying thing. But if we saw things as God sees them, we would identify, if you will, with the natural man. And that's all that matters at the end of the day, isn't it? It's what God thinks. It doesn't matter what you and I think. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is how God sees mankind. Because I might be able to look great before my neighbor, but my neighbor's not the one who's going to judge me at the end of all days. Well, that's what we get here, is that God himself was the one that's revealing these characteristics. Well, what does God say about the unbeliever here, or the natural man? If you look in verse 1, He says specifically, there is no fear of God before his eyes. There is no fear of God before his eyes. This is a summary statement of of literally everything he's about to say in verses 2 through 4. Suffice it to say, at the heart of mankind's condition or his rebellion is this reality. They don't fear God. And this is a grand sin of mankind. This is a sin from which all other sins flow. And so at the base level of every single person who has ever lived, who has ever not believed in Jesus Christ, who has not confessed God as Savior and Lord, is the reality that they do not fear him. They do not tremble before the Holy One as they ought to. And so we have to simply ask ourselves, what does that actually mean then? What does it mean to fear Yahweh? Or what does it mean rather not to fear him? In the simplest terms possible, the way Scripture describes the one who does not fear the Lord is that they are the functional atheist. They do not consider God in his ways. They simply do what they please without consideration to what he has said or to judgment or to anything else. They they pay no heed to the fact that God is the one whom they must answer to. And ultimately, they just simply live as if there is no God. Well, listen, at this point, the temptation for everyone is going to be to simply think of somebody else. And I know exactly what that's like. You hear a sermon and you're thinking, I wish that person was here because they could hear this, right? But we need to attend ourselves to the text and ask, are we the one who lives as a functional atheist? Are we the person that Scripture would describe as the natural man, the one whom my sins are still accounted to me rather than Christ's righteousness? Well, the reality is, if you have not trusted in Christ, then automatically you're there. But I've also been in the church long enough to know that some who have been in the church their whole lives, though they pretend, or I shouldn't say pretend, though they they think they confess Christ, they don't, because they have no love of Christ. What I would say to that one is that if you live as a functional atheist, this is you. 
This is how God would describe you. This is how God would describe the one who has no fear of him before their eyes. Scripture simply declares to them that they are the wicked one, the natural man. Well, the Apostle Paul pushes this reality even further in the book of Romans. We're not going to turn there, but remember, he speaks of the fact that, that God has made himself known in literally all of creation, but for the very purpose that man is without excuse. In other words, he looks all around him and he can see the glory of God evident in creation, and therefore they cannot reject this fact. And yet, what do they do but suppress the truth in their unrighteousness? And The granddaddy's sin of them all is simply that they do not honor God or give him thanks. And so as a result of that, they become futile in their thinking and their speculations and their foolish hearts are darkened. Well, the illustration I like to give to really bring all of that home is simply picture your sweet old grandmother. Right? She's the kindest person that you've ever met. She spoils the grandkids. She gives her time to the soup kitchen and she brings all of her neighbors along with her so that way they too can serve. She takes long walks on hot summer days with everybody and then gives them ice cream at the end of it all. And if everyone were just like her, the world would truly be a better place. And yet, she rejects the gospel. She's she's not nasty about it. She doesn't make fun of you for it. In fact, she's actually happy that you're a believer. She looks at you with an understanding nod and a sweet smile on her face all the while and says, you know, I'm happy that you're a Christian, but religion is just not for me. I don't need it to be a good person. But that sweet old lady stands at the precipice of eternity where she will suffer the greatest torments that have ever been poured out upon a sinner in all of mankind simply because she does not honor God nor give him thanks. It doesn't matter how good of a person she is. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of her. All of her good deeds are but glorious sins in the eyes of her maker. Not once has she given thanks for the grandchildren. Not once has she considered that the gentle, cooling breeze on the back of her neck as she takes those long summer walks and enjoys those ice cream cones with the grandkids is but another one of the many gifts her creator has given to her in his infinite kindness. Though she sees the world with 20-20 vision, she is utterly blind because she does not honor him as Lord nor give him thanks. And that is enough, beloved, to send you and I to hell. That's enough. That mindlessness, that lack of thankfulness, that other blindness born out of failing to fear the Lord is enough to land us in hell. Now that's just the summary statement here of this psalm. So now let's look at verses 2 through 4, and we're going to see David flesh out what this means all the more. So look down with me at verse 2, and he says here, For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Well, here David is simply speaking to that part of the natural man, which is his conscience. Again, in the book of Romans, Paul picks this reality up, and he says that the Gentiles, it is everyone who is not a Jew, which is you and me, have the natural revelation of the law written on our hearts even though God has not given it to them in specific like he did to Israel. He goes on to say that this, in fact, proves that the law is written on our hearts, that our conscience bears witness to the truth of God, and we have either felt guilt over our sin or we've excused our guilt because we want to sin all the more. But their conscience is the very thing that Paul would say is going to stand before God on the day of judgment and reveal the secrets of the heart of men. 
And you and I have all felt this at one point or another. We've all known when we're going to tell a lie when the truth would do. We've all known when we're going to steal and it would be wrong to do so. We've all known that it's wrong to lust after another person who is not our spouse or to commit those deeds. And yet what he says here in in this psalm, in Psalm 36, is that without the fear of the Lord, the natural man literally smooths all of these things out. He smooths out his sins. So when a sin is exposed, he doesn't hate it as he should, but he makes excuses, if you will. He pushes the blame on everybody else. But at the heart of it, he is simply self-deceived. He's self-deceived, though, because he wants to indulge all the more in his sin. The natural man simply thinks better of himself than he ought. And the simple reason for this is that if he didn't, he would see himself as he truly is, he would hate his sin, he would fear the Lord. He flatters himself by thinking, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. He rationalizes his sins away as shrewd business dealings, if you will, or somebody else getting their just reward. In everything, though, what he seeks to do is simply justify his actions and then push down or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He pushes down that feeling of guilt and shame that his conscience naturally does and thereby sears his conscience. But the reason for this is because he does not fear the Lord. At the heart of it is his rebellion to God. He does not fear the Lord, and as a result, he smooths out his sins. He makes excuses. He blames shifts. He does everything he can to get away from the reality at hand because he is delusional. Picture it like a man who looks in the mirror. He can never walk away understanding what he is or seeing himself as God sees him because he does not fear the Lord. That is the reason. And yet the natural man's predicament is not simply that he is delusional or self-deceived by this very thing, that his words and deeds are even degenerate, which is what we see in verse 3. So look down with me there. You see that David writes, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased or stopped to be wise and to do good. Well, here David simply confirms that the natural man's inward state is revealed in his words. Right? Jesus said it in a different way, didn't he? He said, out of the heart, or the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, at the heart of the natural man is wickedness, and so his speech is wickedness. But notice that his words are not merely wicked. They are deceptive. In other words, he has a lying tongue. He's not only filled with malice and has speech coming out of malice, but that his tongue is also filled with deceit, and so you can't trust anything he has to say. And all of his lies are, again, wrapped under this self-deception that is a lack of fearing the Lord. So he finds reason to justify his perverse and lying tongue. Well, the second half of verse 3 is then an understood in light of the natural man's wicked speech. As Psalm 1 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, this verse indicates much the same, but in the opposite sense. Right? His lack of fearing the Lord naturally flows into his lack of wisdom. The point is that simply for the one who does not fear Yahweh, his life is characterized by a complete lack of wisdom. And so it's not that he is unwise, that he simply needs to learn better habits, but that he literally lacks the capabilities or the faculties to do anything wise and good. 
But again, the root issue of all of this is that he does not fear the Lord. So the natural man lacks skill to apply wisdom in every facet of life. And the reason, again, is that he does not fear the Lord. His life is not arranged under God and his word. As the wise man lives skillfully under the authority of God's word, the unwise man lives a life characterized by the very opposite of this. He lacks any and all wisdom, therefore he lacks any and all skill to live well. Well, there's just a practical aspect to this, isn't there? A person who fails to consider God in in his ways and, and in his decisions will inevitably just make a series of poor decisions. In other words, they are the never-ending train wreck of a life, and they have done so because they lack wisdom. They may make decisions that are wise in the world's eyes, but what does that matter if the rest of the world is just as godless and unwise as they are? And this is really at the crux of the issue. They might show insight or understanding or even skill in their decision-making, but it is not in doing what is truly wise and right. They reject God. They reject the counsel of his word. They lack the faculties to do anything but speak and act in degenerate and unwise ways. And again, all of it because they do not fear Yahweh. Well, the natural man's condition doesn't even stop here, as we see in verse 4. He says, even the natural man's steps are deviant. So David writes, he plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Well, here he focuses in on the plans that man makes. So we move beyond the external manifestations of it to see the very character and the nature of his thoughts and the intentions of his thoughts. But what does he do? He lies awake at night to scheme. And while he might not intend to cause harm in everything he does, that's the inevitable result simply because Everything flows from his heart, which does not fear the Lord. So he can't help but make wicked schemes. He deceives himself in all that he does. He thinks that he is doing the right thing, even. He doesn't submit himself to God and his word, and so naturally even his plans reveal that about him. He sets himself on the path of the wicked, again, because he is incapable of being on the path of the good and wise and the true things of the Lord. And finally, he does not despise evil, right? He rejects that which is good, again, because he does not fear Yahweh. And so in every single way, his life is characterized by ungodliness. And if you want to know what ungodliness is, that's it in a nutshell. It's his whole life, his whole being is considered apart from God and his word. Jude puts it a different way, but pretty much the same as we find here, that the ungodly are consumed by ungodly thoughts and ungodly motives for ungodly desires. And every bit, they just simply don't even equate God in the matter. They're completely and utterly mindless of God and his word. And so the point of all of this in verses 2 through 4 is simply that for the one who does not fear the Lord, he is going to be characterized by this ungodliness. We ought not be surprised. Right? They flatter themselves. They smooth out their sins. They act as if sins are not really sins at all. They are characterized by wicked speech and a lying tongue. They devise evil plans in their beds. They walk on evil paths because they cannot reject evil. In every conceivable way, they embrace their sin. But beloved, hear this. They live this way because they love it. They love it. And that's perhaps one of the most difficult things for us to consider and accept because 
evil men love their evil. Right? It sounds really simple when you say it like that, but when you apply that to your children and to your grandparents and to everybody you know who's not in Christ, to even you prior to knowing Christ, it becomes all the harder. But the way that Scripture describes it is that from birth to death, from womb to tomb, if you will, every man is continually evil in his heart unless the grace of God intervenes and causes him to be born again. In other words, every single person who has ever lived fits this description if they are not in Christ. In its simplest essence, this is what the natural man looks like apart from grace. This is why Paul says in the book of Romans, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. I put that on your tombstones. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the peace of God they have not known, or the path of peace they have not known. Here's how he finishes it in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is how God sees man. In all his splendor, this is how God sees the natural man. We fool ourselves, we seek to fool others, but at the end of the day, God is not fooled. He's not impressed. So if you want a true portrait of mankind, if you want a true portrait of the heart of the unbeliever, look no further than this description here. Again, this is when it becomes hard because this is your son, your daughter, your spouse, your neighbor, anyone that you love, who is outside of Christ. This is you if you are outside of Christ. This is the best you've got. But beloved, this is also why you will never ever argue somebody into the kingdom. You can't. You can bring forth all the evidence in the world, all the truth of Scripture to bear, and unless God works by His Spirit to regenerate them, they will reject it every single time. And yet the scriptures say that they are still left without excuse because the truth is evident to all mankind. There's not going to be a single person who will stand before God on the day of judgment and explain every bit of it away. They will not be able to say, I am not utterly wicked. I am not as you see me. I am a good man. If you're not in Christ on the day of judgment, every tongue is stopped, every knee bows, every excuse falls short and your own heart will condemn you before your maker. Beloved, the only remedy we have is Jesus Christ. The only remedy we have. Well, with the rest of our time today, through the rest of this psalm, I want to show you this reality and show you how every bit of it's speaking about, for one, who God is, but how Christ exemplifies this in an incredibly beautiful way. Right? David takes a, an incredibly decisive shift in the psalm. He's just giving a scathing indictment of who the natural man is, a condition of every man, woman, and child apart from God. He's painted this picture, and we are ugly to our core. But now, in stark contrast, he moves to show an incredibly beautiful portrayal of who, of who God is. And this was most beautifully displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, now look with me to verses 5 through 12 where we get to see the Holy One in all his splendor. 
Well, starting in verse 5, he writes, Your loving kindness, Yahweh, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Here we find the foremost difference between the natural man and the holy one. It's man's world which is dim and limiting and falls short in every single aspect, but God's covenant-keeping love, his faithfulness, reaches beyond all things. They know no boundaries. His loving kindness here refers to that rich Hebrew term, chesed, and it speaks to that love of God which is always and ever faithful to his covenant. We think of terms like mercy and compassion and love and grace and loyalty and kindness and forgiveness and faithfulness to describe God, and these are all true, but if you lumped them all together, they would still not fully describe what hesed means. Well, even here, David says that this enduring and steadfast, immovable love born out of God's own covenant and his nature is without limit. The vastness of the cosmos can't even contain it. It's not a mere emotion. It's a reflection of the very character and nature of God himself. God's faithfulness, then, in light of this loving kindness, this covenant love, is natural or naturally parallel to this. Right? If his covenant-keeping love knows no bounds, it's natural to see that his faithfulness knows no bounds. It, too, reaches to the skies. And yet in Christ, this beautiful truth is revealed all the more, or all in its fullness, if you will. It's God's covenant love and faithfulness which brought him to make good on the promises given to Israel and the promises bound up in his word. God promised that one, out of, he promises out of his covenant, right, that one would come who would not only give them a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit, but that he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, which is you and I. The only reason you and I are in this room right now, if you profess Christ, is simply that God, in his covenant-keeping love, has decided that he would extend that to the Gentiles. That's all born out of this. God promised that this same one would usher in a new and a better covenant that, where his laws would be written on their hearts and in their minds. Well, he promised that Christ would once and for all decidedly accomplish the sacrifice that was necessary to even atone for sin, that which the blood of goats and bulls could not accomplish. Well, that by his sacrifice, that though your sins were once as scarlet, they are now as white as snow. That as far as east is to the west, that your sins are no longer brought to remembrance. Well, this same covenant love and faithfulness is on display when we consider that God has, for his own sake, remembered our sins no more. In other words, it's not born out of something that's lovely within you and I. It's not moved by anything that's special within us because there's nothing special there. Right? This psalm simply demolishes that idea in verses 1 through 4. The reality, though, is that God, despite all of this, was pleased to move. Those two great words, but God, in Scripture, right? God is moved by his own faithfulness, his own love to bring those who are in darkness to light, those who were children of wrath and children of Satan that he has now adopted and made children of God, that those who were slaves to sin and heir to every spiritual blessing in Christ. Well, beloved, everything that you and I have come to hope in, everything that we confess, is simply because God is faithful to his covenant promises. He has placed this unique love upon us through Christ, and the scriptures say that nothing, beloved, nothing in all creation can keep us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Is this not a glorious truth? 
Nothing can keep us from that love. But much like God's covenant love and faithfulness are infinite, we see that the justice of God is also immovable in verse 6. Well, David writes, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. Well, here David simply joins the attributes of God's righteousness and his justice, and he shows that God is upright in every single thing that he does. Everything he does, therefore, is fair and good and right. Everything that God does, in other words, conforms to the standard. And the reason why? God himself is the standard. Well, the terms mountain of God and the great deep here show that his righteousness and his justice or his judgments are the greatest possible expressions of these things given to mankind. The mountain of God's righteousness, if you will, is immovable. It is inflexible, unyielding, and unbending, all in the most perfect of ways because no man can stand before the monolith of God's righteousness with the hopes to scale it or overcome it. They cannot diminish it. God is always and ever righteous. He will never fail to be righteous. No man will ever come close to being as righteous as God. In fact, the scriptures say that he cannot apart or from Christ. Well, the great deep here is the same word that's used when the torrents of water would burst forth during Noah's day. The simile is used to show that God's ways, his knowledge, are unfathomable. So just as one cannot reach the very heights of the mountains of God's righteousness, no man can reach the depths of his wisdom and his knowledge. So even a guy like Solomon, all of his wisdom on the fullest display could never hope to accomplish all that God did in terms of his wisdom. He pales in comparison to him. So hand in hand, these attributes, his righteous, his or his righteousness, his justice, then comport the reality that God's greatness is above all creation. These two know no limits. From the highest of heights to the deepest of depths, his righteousness and justice know no bounds. And so no one can shake the foundations. They cannot fathom his ways. No one can diminish them, nor can they ignore them, especially when their own character is put in comparison to God's own. Well, the evidence of all this, David says, is that God preserves or saves both man and beast. And here he's talking about the general term of salvation, right? So we we see this when God brings rain upon the just and the unjust. We see this when at the just perfect time during the Serengeti where there's drought and all the animals are about to die, that he brings in the floodwaters. He, fe- he feeds all of life. Even the one who is the natural man who says in his heart of hearts that there is no God in some measure still benefits simply because God is the giver and sustainer of all life. Every time the natural man breathes, he does so because God has given him air. God has given him functional lungs or a breathing machine even. Every time the natural man has his heartbeats, it only does so at the permission of its creator. And yet again, in Christ, we find the fullness of this most beautiful truth about who God is. Christ is the perfectly righteous one. He is the perfectly just one. He obeyed all the Father's commandments, all the days of his life. Every decision he made was in the perfect submission to the will of God. He endured temptations in the wilderness. He fulfilled the law. He endured the shame of the cross. And we know that he rose again on the third day. All of this because he was the ordained branch, righteous branch of David. He was the one sent of God for this very purpose. 
And when he returns, he will also reign in perfect wisdom as a king who will administer perfect justice and perfect righteousness in all the land. The evidence of this, again, is that even now he is sustainer and savior. Well, Colossians 1, 16 through 17 tells us that Christ, in him all things have been created through him and for him, and in him all things hold, that is, consist together. He is the supreme one, the head of the church even, who reconciled us to God by making peace through his blood, the blood on the cross. Romans 11 speaks of the same reality in terms of what God is still going to accomplish with Israel, right? Paul tells us that God's gift and his callings are irrevocable, that the nation of Israel is turned over to disobedience so that we might receive mercy, but then one day out of that same mercy, they too will receive mercy. And so what does Paul do? He doesn't explain it all. He doesn't look at it. He simply bursts forth in praise at the magnanimity of God's incredible grace and mercy. And he says, much like David does in this psalm here, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How unfathomable are his ways? Well, yet even here, there's far more to speak of concerning who God is, right? He is not only infinite in his love, he is not only immovable in his justice, but verses 7 through 9 talk about God's goodness being incomparable. Look down with me once more into the text. David writes, how precious is your loving kindness, your chesed, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. Well, here David moves from those general provisions for all the earth to those special blessings he says are found only for those who are God's children. And again, we find that term, that rich Hebrew term, Hesed arise in the text, and it's speaking of, again, that special covenant love that God is always and ever faithful to, but he gives now a further explanation on what that entails. And so David, though, is led to exclaim, how precious is your Hesed, Lord? How treasured is your covenant love? Well, it is this covenant love, at least to David, that is to be valued more above any other thing. It's from this unfailing love that God gives their uh, the children of God, everything they need, every single thing they need, right? He says in verse seven, they take refuge in the shadow of his wings. And what he's expressing here is that simple truth that in God himself, there is actually safety and security. There is shelter from the storm in the midst of any and all chaos, in the midst of war, in the midst of trials and evils that befall us, God is the constant. He is the one who preserves and saves and protects He not only delivers us from the judgment promised for sin, but he actually takes care of his children in this life. Beloved, that is why it's so precious to David. I remember the Psalms we've already gone through in just a sense, right? He is constantly at the end of his rope because enemies are pursuing him, and yet God is the one who is his shelter. God is his protection, even when everything else fails. Well, then in verse 8, David takes up, This priestly imagery here, he speaks of all the good things that God's children enjoy in him. This is really actually quite neat. The first line speaks of the reality of these offerings being made in the temple. That's what he's talking to about in the abundance of God's house. He's speaking of the fatty portions that were reserved for the Levitical priests. 
And as one commentator put it, he's saying that God provides the best of the best. He's providing the best of the sanctuary food for his people because they are at peace with him. He satisfies them, in other words, both physically and spiritually. In every single way, God is to them a comfort and sustainer and protection, but also a provider of all good things they need. And the second line then reiterates this truth. It says that they will drink to their satisfaction in the river of God's delights. And it's really rather neat here because the word that David uses for delights is actually Eden. He uses the word Eden here to describe this. And what he's doing is he's drawing back to describe the Garden of Eden to describe God's blessings upon them as if they're back in the garden, once again, drinking from the river of life. Well, then the climax of this all unfolds in verse 9 where he says that God himself is the one who is the giver of all these good gifts, especially to his children. Right? In God himself is the fountain of life, and in him we see light. And again, David's doing something incredibly beautiful and poetic here. He's, he's portraying the goodness of God, but as it relates, as it relates back to the creation account. Right? We see firsthand that God in creation is the very source of light. He is the very source of all life. So what was the very first creative act that God embarked on? He said what? Let there be light. And from that moment forward, everything in creation was just teeming with life. Well, darkness, it conveys death and chaos, but light conveys life and order. And so the point of all this is to simply say that God himself is the very fountainhead of life and order, but especially for his children. So the recipient of God's covenant love sees all of this as, as incredibly precious because they know that God's unique blessing is upon them, right? God has given them all good things, and he's done so much more for them that they're not even aware of. But once more, we see that the greatest expression of this is in Christ. The greatest expression of God's goodness and his provision to us is in Christ. Right? What John 1.4 says, in him was life, and the light was the light or the life was the light of men. He goes on to say that he was in the world, Christ was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world, though, did not know him. He came to his own, and they did not receive him. But to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in Christ, we have the fullness of every blessing because he has united us to the Father. He has removed our spiritual blindness and he has shown us the light, but we not only see it, we actually walk in that realm. We walk in that realm. He is our every spiritual sustenance. If you want to compare it to even what was said in the psalm, he has surpassed it in every way because he has surpassed the fatty portions of the temple offerings Right and In the supper, Christ invites us to feast on his flesh and to drink of his blood, which we do every week, and all of it is a remembrance of the fact that anyone who claims salvation in Christ, that he gives the gift of eternal life. They shall never grow hungry. All will be given to them. And then he further promised that anyone who believes in him will also drink of living waters, did he not? And so in this, Christ is referring to the Spirit. The Spirit comes, he dwells in those who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. 
And this is an utterly unique and, and wonderful thing that's given to the New Testament saints, but our, the Spirit is our helper. He makes known to us the thoughts of God. He convicts us of sin. He does many, many more things, but the most dear of these, at least to me, is that he seals us for the day of redemption. Well, beloved, it's, it's because Christ died and rose again and ascended that he even sent his Spirit towards us. But this Spirit brings the light of life to the, uh, those who are in Christ continually to bear in us. Just as we shall never hunger, we shall never thirst. The reason for this is simply because the Spirit fills us up to the fullness of God's goodness in abundance. We lack absolutely nothing in Christ, in other words. Well, we turn now to our, our final three verses of this psalm, and he brings all of these truths together in a, in a glorious short prayer. David says, O oh, continue your loving kindness, your hesed to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. So he actually prays for a couple of different things here, but the first thing he prays for is that God would continue in his hesed, his steadfast covenant love, and that he would continue in his righteous dealings to those who know him. Well, David recognizes that God is a very fountainhead. He is the very source of every single blessing that we have. And so his heart cry is rather simple. God, would you just simply continue to pour out those blessings immensely so all the more of yourself? And the simple reason for this is he's enthralled with who God is. He has every reason to desire more and more of God because he knows that God is a wellspring of joy that will never run dry. Right? God is infinitely loving, as the psalmist already said. He is immovably just in all his ways. He is incomparably good in all his ways. And so why not ask to have as much of him as you possibly can have? Well, there, there's no rebuke in me asking this, but when was the last time you prayed a prayer like that? I, I can tell you it's been a while for myself, but this is what David does here. When was the last time you asked to be just enraptured all the more with who God is? Well, think, if you, if you prayed like that during the hard times, if you just asked to see the true depth and goodness of the Lord in all his ways, that is, all he is, beloved, do you think he would not grant that? Would that not be a, a prayer that delights him? Look, there's nothing wrong with asking for things. We all, we all have need, but there is so, so much more for us to pray for. One of the best indications of what we treasure is what's on our prayers. Well, notice, though, that David doesn't just stop here in what he prays for. In verse 11, he asks that the Lord would keep the upright from the harm of the wicked or the natural man. And as we saw, verses 1 through 4, it's little wonder why he would pray for that, right? If they're devious in all their ways, they're naturally going to afflict everybody. Their plans are evil. Their intent is evil. David is not. And so he says, deliver me from these men. They're the exact opposite of who God is in every single way. But he goes beyond their character here, if you would look at it. He, he says, Lord, do not let the foot of pride come upon me. And the imagery here is that this man is actually placing his foot on his neck. 
He's putting his foot on his neck as if he's defeated him, that God's covenant faithfulness is not won out at the end of the day, that it's failed to do that which it is purposed to do. And so when David just simply asks, don't let this happen. Let your covenant love abide all the more. Don't let the natural man or the evil man put his foot upon my neck. Overwhelm evil. Overwhelm evil so that the righteous can experience the fullness of who you are all the more. Is that not a beautiful prayer? But then notice how confident he is in verse 12. He prays with this expectation. He says, There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. So he looks with eyes to see this reality. It's already taken place. He's so confident that he sees it already. He says, they are already fallen. They have already been cast down. They cannot rise. So it's, it's this terrifying picture in one sense. It's the utter hopelessness of this natural man as they stand before the Holy One if grace does not intervene. And so in other words, God's judgment is inescapable for the natural man apart from Christ or apart from God's grace. And again, we see this most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, do we not? He not only took wrath in our place, but beloved, he's coming back. And when he comes back, it will not be a pretty picture. The scriptures describe it as that time when the blood will rise to the horse's bridle from the wet rind press of his wrath. There will be much anguish as man stands before their maker and has to give an account because nobody will be able to give an excuse Remember, what we saw is that they don't have an excuse to give. It doesn't matter how they see themselves because the reality is that God depicts them as what we saw in verses 1 through 4. The natural man, which again is every single person outside of this grace of God, is just like he described them in verses 1 through 4. He said that the natural man's eyes are darkened, meaning they, they cannot see. Their thoughts are delusional, meaning they cannot think. Their words and deeds are degenerate, meaning everything they do is sown in sin and corrupt. And his steps are deviant, meaning even the thoughts and the intentions of his heart are wicked. All of this because there's no fear of God before his eyes. Well, if we were left to compare ourselves with everybody else, we might actually have a fighting chance, wouldn't we? Because we're not as evil as some of the other people in this world. None of us in this room are as evil as Hitler was. God doesn't do that here, does he? He doesn't say, look at the wicked and judge yourself against the wicked. He says, judge the wicked against my perfect, righteous, holy standard, which is me. Stand next to me, O natural man. And what we find is that God's love is infinite. He is always faithful to his covenant. His justice is immovable, meaning that no man can thwart it or run around it. His goodness is incomparable and that his vengeance is inescapable apart from the grace of God in Christ. Well, what are we left to do with all of that? Well, beloved, I would argue that these are truths we all must simply come to wrestle with. And each and every one of us must, at one point or another, ask ourselves, do we embody the natural man, or are we one who places full emphatic trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of sins, because God is infinitely holy. 
Well, what this psalm shows us, again, is that man is utterly sinful. God is utterly holy. And therefore, we are utterly doomed apart from Christ. Only he can overcome our desperate condition. Only he can turn away the wrath of God. Only he can change our nature to be one who comports with the righteous standard of God. We might be one who embodies, at least in some part, in some way, shape, or form, God's love, his kindness, his justice, and his goodness. But apart from the grace of God, we are only the man who embodies everything that verses 1 through 4 says about us. And in light of this, it simply tells us you and I can't do enough to earn God's favor. We can't earn that. We don't have a hope to do that. We can't earn a place before God's standard. We can't even hope to complete part of it because God's standard is God. Last time I checked, none of us are God, right? It tells us furthermore, he's not a God who helps those who help themselves. He's not a God who picks up the pieces of our broken lives as if if we are Humpty Dumpty and all he has to do is just kind of patch us back together again. He's not a God who throws a life vest to the drowning man as if he has to grab a hold and, and live. He can't do that. But there's also nothing within this man that's worthy of helping and fixing or saving. So who God is, is the one who looks upon our bloated and rotting corpse at the bottom of the ocean that's being fed upon by the fish. We are the dead man, the one who is utterly incapable of of living or saving ourselves, the one who's utterly doomed, utterly without hope. And he says to that man, live. And he says to live in Christ. The only thing we have left to say when we look at ourselves before God is simply that Christ is our only hope, is he not? Beloved, there's, there's no other place we can go. There's no other God we can serve. No other God will accept, or accept us. No other God will save us. And no other God can thwart God, right? There's no other master we can pledge our allegiance to. No, Christ is Savior. He is Lord. He alone holds the words of eternal life. Where else do we go? We can only say, Christ died on my behalf. Christ bled for me. It is he and he alone that can save a wretch like me. We have no other confession to make. We have no other hope. We have no other plea. It is enough that Christ would die and that he would die for us. Beloved, this is amazing grace, is it not? When we truly understand who we were apart from the grace of God in Christ, all we have left to do is cast ourselves upon his mercy and his goodness. What we find in that, that this is a substance of everything that we Christians hope in. Left to our own, we have absolutely no hope. We have nothing. But in Christ, we have everything. And so I I simply leave you with this final thought today. If you don't believe the gospel, if you don't believe that Christ is one who saves, you don't believe any of that, you think it's just nonsense, can I ask you why? And for you to just think on why? I don't don't mean that in any nasty way, but the way this text puts it is we are powerless, utterly powerless to do anything about it. We are without hope if we do not have the grace of God. The only thing we have is doom. But God in his mercy offers another way. Another way. 
Why would you not want that instead of wrath? Well, if you are in Christ, if you do believe the gospel, can I also ask you to just think on this and and just a tremendous amount and give incredible thanks that though you were the natural man, that he has now raised you from dead to life. You are not that man anymore because of who Christ is and what he has done. He took us out of that realm and he brought us into a realm in which we see the beauty of his unfailing covenant love in which we see the light of life, which is Jesus Christ. But beloved, one day we're going to see that all the more. We're going to see that in full. We might see it dimly now, but one day we will see all of these things, all of these attributes of who God is in full without the presence of sin. How awesome is that? Well, let's pray. Well, Father, I I thank you that you are an incredibly good and gracious and loving God, that you have given us your Son in which we might might find forgiveness, that we we might find fullness, and you have promised to even provide for us in the here and now. That this is not something that is distant and far removed from us, as if David lived thousands of years ago and we cannot even look at this text in, in light of who we are and but that we can see ourselves as you see us, but see all the more who you are and that we would cast ourselves upon your mercy and grace. I thank you for this people that you call Missio Dei Fellowship and I pray that your blessing will be upon them, that as they go about this next week, as we even leave the sanctuary to eat, that we would not quickly forget all that you have revealed to us in your word. We would not quickly forget your grace upon us, but that we would be boldly confident to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and him crucified to every man knowing that they are truly dead in sin, but that your word brings life, and that if you are pleased to work within them, you can bring them out of darkness and into light. May we never forget where we come from, and may we give praise and glory to you all the days of our lives, recognizing you as the giver of all good things. But may we most of all simply await that day in which we are raised to glory and come to be with you forevermore with great hope and great joy. Pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.